You did it. You did it in the beginning. Bloody hell, I can't play with that. Right? Hey? Well, you're fucking doing it. <laughs> Why don't you just do what you fucking started out doing? Dabba 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 cha. On your top one, dabba 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 cha. Dabba 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 cha. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Roll 29, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone up with so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 27 Welcome back to January 6th, 1969. The Beatles have made some progress on new material, but the pressure of time has just started to have an effect upon already present tensions in the band. This is the episode that will feature the notorious argument between George and Paul that was blown out of all proportion on the Let It Be film, re-edited in anthology and given a far better framing in Peter Jackson's Get Back series. A quick podcast recommendation. Make It Stop, a bad music podcast. Great fun and there is an episode which covers the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton soundtrack for their movie of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That is definitely more worth your time than the actual film. Before we delve into the next section of tape, here is a brief recap of episode 26, the second part of our analysis of the rehearsal for Don't Let Me Down. As we rejoin the band, Paul is suggesting a drum pattern for Ringo, a callback to the early 60s twist beat, often used on their first recordings, but quickly abandoned mindful, as they always are, of appearing corny. For the middle section, Paul is still pursuing the idea that they do a call and response vocal. He and George try vocalising something, but both come up with distinctly different melodies. For a while, they sing both together. Paul improvises words, since he doesn't have a copy of the lyrics. 
love for the first time in my life and don't you let it get away. They then try a version of the middle section, this time with George playing the vocal lines on guitar. This isn't too successful, so George suggests playing and singing the same line. Throughout, George hasn't stopped using the wah-wah pedal. John's voice begins to tire, so he resorts to various comic voices with each run-through. John semi-seriously tries the middle section in 6-8 time like a Fats Domino tune, and then suggests they try something else. Paul, however, wants to carry on rehearsing Don't Let Me Down. Perhaps thinking, if they finish John's one song, he might write another. George asks what date it is and Paul bluntly states that they only have 12 days until the performance. In response, John comically plays Don't Let Me Down at double speed, accompanied by Ringo. The general mood of the band changes notably after this revelation. However, instead of knuckling down to some work, Paul, John and Ringo begin jamming again. Eventually they go for a run-through of Don't Let Me Down, but it's too fast and quickly breaks down. Unable to hear them through the PA, John asks George and Paul to sing the response harmonies on their own, and we are treated to the odd effect of the tape slowing down to a halt. John still has nothing to offer, other than asking how they would have approached the problem in the past. Paul wants he and George to sing ours under the lead vocal. George, clearly thinking of the deadline, ponders on how difficult it would be to recruit and rehearse extra musicians for the show. At this point he offers his own solution to the middle section, a unison guitar and bass figure, but this doesn't get much support, though it's clearly the answer to the problem. After trying a run-through with the backing vocals singing R, Paul becomes impatient and wants them to go back to his original idea of a call and response vocal. Tension between George and Paul is definitely increasing. George favours simply copying John's lyrics, but Paul wants to sing his own words. They try it George's way, but no one is satisfied. George bluntly states that this approach to the middle section is awful. John and Paul want to know if he has a better suggestion. In response, George offers a vocal line with the high vocal staying on one note and the other descending. This doesn't work either. John, now getting impatient, thinks they should just have a placeholder idea in this section for now. This actually defeats the purpose of rehearsing it, however, and would just delay a decision being made. Paul suggests just doing the corny one, his idea, for now. Agreeing with John, George points out that they keep trying this without fixing the underlying problem, and that's why they don't get anywhere. To fix the problem with the lyrics, Paul suggests swapping the line around, as John's amplifier gets increasingly crackly. This idea makes John think of the backing vocals on the Bonzo Dog Band's Canyons of Your Mind. At the end of this run-through, George finds something approaching the signature riff, and suggests not singing the last line. The irony being that the one enduring idea of this whole rehearsal is brought about by stopping the call and response vocal they've spent over an hour on. George talking to Paul points out that if he could hear the backing vocal ideas back on tape, he'd reject them straight away. Glyn Johns, sitting on the piano stool, 
laughs along to defuse the tension. Paul finally gives in after all that stubbornness. John attempts to soothe Paul's bruised pride by pointing out all the positives of the work so far, such as sorting out the drum parts. It appears John avoids confronting Paul over his ideas and uses George as a human shield in a way to challenge Paul and get his own way. He says as much in the secretly recorded canteen tape. John likens his middle section to Sam Cooke's Send Me Some Loving. Glyn offers his objective opinion, suggesting one vocal for the first line, two for the second and three for the third. This isn't how they interpret it, however. George returns to playing the vocal line and Paul sings along with John on the first and third lines. The next run through caught on tape starts with George's signature riff at the beginning, like in the finished version, but it's still smothered in Wawa. In this run through, George arrives at the idea of using the riff throughout the song. In the next run through, George develops the guitar part he will use in the verses. So really George has benefited from the lengthy rehearsal the most, despite the negative effect it's had on his mood. We can now rejoin the Beatles as they move on to the next song to rehearse. That sounds like John is saying, that will do for now anyway. suggesting the next song to rehearse John could be heard looking for it George doesn't remember the song or who played what. John recalls his loving spoonful guitar rhythm. He started it one, two, three, four. Yeah. Two of us ride. 
Paul, when asked for an opinion, often defaults to a passive, I don't know really. But this is undermined by his more assertive direction to John to learn the lyrics, not just read them. You have to remember the words too. Yes, I've got them here. But learn them. Yes. I almost know them. So it's right and over spend it. Okay. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Checking to see if John remembers to sing the melody line doesn't join in immediately. Ringo has remembered his part perfectly. Once again though, he's evolving the galloping rhythm of Get Back between Maltrues. George is using the Wawa all through this song too. George asking Paul to clarify his point. He's saying keep the rhythm the same all the way through the middle section. Don't play less. He confusingly describes this as slowing down. It's a long break that Once again, John is leaving it to Paul and George to hammer out the finer details. Tape runs out. Slate 87, take one. The time is now 10 to 5. It's 4.50 pm. Some time seems to have passed. They're now working on the harmonies. Two of us wearing rainbows, Okay, do the second with later. Two, three, four. You and I. 
reminding George of his high harmony part while Ringo doubles up his drum part, having fun with it. Slate 90, take one on camera A. Paul now takes the band through an ending, complete with harmonies. Though Johnny's singing Paul's part, Paul George isn't. George is trying an extremely high falsetto. George has finally switched off the wah wah and the guitar sounds much better. Yeah, that's how we should end it three times on our way back. Try it from the beginning. One, two, three, four. Should change the beat there too. It's like. Nobody shouldn't be. suggests another drum part for Ringo reminiscent of Be My Baby a hit for the Ronettes Ringo asks just the second one meaning the second middle section suggests George play octaves like on Getting Better, a song from the Sgt Pepper album. John seems to be complaining that they're tackling the harder songs first. Paul disagrees, however. But it still still keeps something going. <laughs> <laughs> 
Another unusual drumming suggestion from Paul that Ringo doesn't quite grasp, but Paul lets it drop. Let's get it so we know it's simply, and then, then we can add. You know, we don't even we don't know any one yet. Like straight. You know, we, we keep trying to get to the bits. And yet, instead of a full run through, he stops the band before the first middle section. This following section is the full argument without interruptions from me. Like in this verse, it's two harmonies singing, trying to say some words. So, like, you know, it can just, it's just. And then in the bits when we need bits. Yeah, I'm not, we're not I'm just trying to sing it and do this. It's when the riffs bits come up. The riffs, uh, there's no riffs. I mean, it's, it's nice to get, no, it's, to well, get look, what you're See, you and I are uh, on. In, Memories, uh, but it's not—it's not together, so that it's not sounding together. Yeah, so we can even on, play it until we, or we can stop we and say it's not bit. together. Yes, then you've got to carry on until we get together. Well, okay. Well, I, I sounds like you know, blending with the. Rest. I never know what to say to that, you know, because what I want to say is, you know, now come on and play, yes. you know, and but I can't, I know, yes, you know, and we get into that uh, one. Okay, <laughs> so here we go. But no, yeah, I mean, well, I'm tell us something about that. You know. I can't make it beyond that. You know. It's like it's it's complicated now. So see if we can get it simpler, and then complicate it where it needs complications. But it's complicated it's not in the bit. Complicated, but, but, it's no, but you, I mean, you know. I mean, I'll play just the chords if you like, and no, no, and then the chords. What are you trying to do? I'm, I'm trying to help, you know. 
but I always hear myself mm. annoying you. And I'm trying to. No, you're not I, I get so I can't say it. But you know what I mean? Well, you know, we do this then. And, we, and then, I don't know.
No, galloping. okay, but don't, no, come on. Look, you know. The galloping bit, and I'll just bam. Look, you know. The, <laughs> no, it's not like that, no, is it? You see, that's it. It's like, when, we've got to do this. We've really got to sort out this, because we're, this is, we're like, this is the one, you know. Now, we're rehearsing, and we're trying to, like, get it together for the TV show. So we've really, like you said, we've only been through four numbers. Mm. So we've probably got to get some system to get through, like, 20. 30 and no more I have learned it. And it's probably going to be like sculpture so that we get all the chords so we can v all vamp them all. Yeah. Then we can like all play every solo we need. <coughs> you know, but like, like, you know what I mean? It's got to sound as though it's improving. But yeah, well, it actually, it sounded to me that for me, it was a waste of my time playing when we started it today. I mean, I just started remembering then what it was getting into the other day after playing it for about an hour and a half. And uh, suddenly, you know, I start finding that my, the one I'm doing is starting to have something, you know, have some structure to it. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean, you know, because it's like, you know, I mean, it's just that that way of doing it, you know, puts me off the way I'm trying to do it. Well, that's and, you know, I, of slate 87 take one The significance of the argument is both overstated and understated in Beatles' law.
Paul once commented that this infamous exchange was not like it was the Trogs tape, the legendary band Rail Court on tape in 1970. I used a clip of it in our pre-credits. And whilst there aren't really any raised voices, it's clear that feelings are hurt during the discussions today and they get referred to later, even when things calm down. The main cause of the argument is George's guitar part, which we can't really hear as well as Paul, but it seems to be a distraction. Despite calling for a full run-through, he stops the song midway to pick over what George is playing. However, being mindful of causing offence, he uses passive language, not identifying the cause but stating vaguely that we're all at odds and it's complicated. The root cause of George's resentment goes right back to recording sessions for the Help album, and probably even before. Paul's acquisition of his own electric guitar in 1964, an Epiphone Casino very similar to the one John and George would later use, enabled him to contribute guitar parts to Beatles recordings. Starting with Ticket to Ride, Paul began to find it easier to just overdub his own lead line rather than try to teach George. He played lead guitar again on his own composition, Another Girl, and it also sounds like the casino doubling George's lead break in the night before. As the Beatles' music evolved, there was less and less use for George's Carl Perkins, Chet Atkins-inspired stylings. As we've witnessed several times during these sessions, Paul will have a very clear idea of the lead guitar part and will often vocalise them to George. It's easy to see how Paul would find it less confrontational to just record the part himself. On 1965's Rubber Soul album, Paul is doing just that again. I'll drive my car and I'm looking through you. In 1966's Revolver album, he plays lead on Taxman and the single Paperback Writer and duets with George on And Your Bird Can Sing. It's reputedly Paul playing the outro lead lines on Strawberry Fields Forever in 1967. On the Sgt Pepper album that year, George takes only one lead guitar break on Paul's Fixing a Hole. The rest, Sgt Pepper's opening track and the reprise and Good Morning Good Morning are all Paul. The resentment that this must have caused between the two men, one can only speculate. But the tipping point may well have been during sessions for Hey Jude, which Paul refers to in this argument. George tried to work out a call and response guitar line, ironically not dissimilar to what Paul is suggesting for Don't Let Me Down. Paul disagreed, and in Tony Palmer's footage for the band rehearsing the song, a thoroughly disheartened George is seen in the control room, effectively sitting out the session. Increasingly, George felt that his contributions weren't valued, and in reality, Paul didn't seem to want him to play on his songs. So what does it all mean? Well, here's my analysis. Paul stops the run-through and describes how he thinks the verse should go. He says, It's two harmonies singing, trying to say some words like, and the bits when we need bits. By bits, Paul means lead lines or embellishments. He doesn't want any of these in the verse. Paul says, on a similar vein, 
We've got to get riffs when the riffs bits come around. George starts to nitpick over his choice of words. Riffs? There's no riffs. It's just to get to what you're playing. He knows what Paul means, but he's pretending not to. Probably because it pushes Paul's buttons. Paul tries to explain more clearly how he hears it. But it's not together so that it's not sounding together. I.e. George's part is clashing with Paul's bassline on the on our way home part. But somehow he can't bring himself to say that. George's view is to play it through until it sounds better. Paul disagrees. Or we can stop and we can say it's not together. George reiterates his point of view. Then you've got to carry on until it gets together. All I can do is play until it sounds like it's blending. Paul feels stymied for fear of offending George. I never know what to say to that. What I want to say is, come on and play. But I can't, I know, and then we get into that one. He wants to just tell George what to play, but now feels it's a taboo subject. Paul goes back to passive language without stating who is at fault. It's complicated now. If we can get it simpler and then complicate it where it needs complications. George again responds pretending not to understand Paul's meaning. It's not complicated. I mean, I'll just play the chords if you like. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find... The hushed tones and the deeper personal significance seems like a married couple trying not to argue in public. Paul tries to placate George. No, no, come on. You always get annoyed when I say that. I'm trying to help you, but I always hear myself annoying you. George again, seeing an opportunity for a passive-aggressive swipe, states, No, you don't annoy me anymore. Paul again, unable to express himself, says, I get so I can't say it. Do this then. This can clearly be seen in the Get Back documentary. Paul, aware of the cameras, is visibly upset at being the bad guy. He puts his bass down and paces the floor in frustration, but grabs some gum from the top of John's amp as a reason for being on his feet, one assumes. The long pauses say as much as the words. John breaks the silence, asking if he still wants to do the galloping guitar part. Paul isn't worried about that. He wants support from John on his point of view, but again he uses passive language. Doesn't everyone agree that it's confused at the moment? You hear John say yes to this. The looming deadline discussed during Don't Let Me Down rehearsals has created a sense of urgency in Paul that he doesn't think is shared by his bandmates. In effect, he feels he needs to have this confrontation to motivate them all. Perhaps it has worked in the past. This is why we're not getting anything done, he says. We've really got to do this methodically, this one. John offers an idea that he play the guitar part more simply so it's easier to sing. It's not much of an arrangement idea, but it's an olive branch to Paul. John knows a big part of Paul's frustration is with him. Again, Paul refers to being, as he puts it, on candid camera. But John tells him to forget about candid camera. Paul goes back to George and tries to see George's side. I always feel as though I'm trying to put you down and stop you playing. I'm not. I'm trying to stop us all playing until we know what we're playing. Paul's way of working is to discuss arrangements, to put into words what should go where. 
George wants to do it by doing it. Yeah, but you've got to play in order to find which fits and which doesn't. Paul explains what he wants. Improvise a solo, but otherwise, strict chords and strict rhythms. Here George points out where he's struggling to find a part. The timing's strange, isn't it, on that? Again, Paul is looking for support from John, but can't say so. I hear myself being the only one saying it. And then feeling like they're clued against him, he describes John and George giving each other sideways glances and muttering, He's saying that one again, is he? Then again, directed at John, he states, I don't get any support on anything. So I just think, oh well, fuck it. Finally addressing John with a, you know it's right. John has to respond, but it's not much help. Yes, all right, he says. I just don't know what to do about it. George is still picking at the wound, under the guise of appearing helpful. It's clearly passive-aggressive. I'll wait until you get your bits and work my bit out, if you like. Have you got your bass bit? Because it will take even longer, you know. That's when Paul snaps. But in front of the cameras, he's still using his indoors voice. George is again insinuating that Paul is stopping him from playing. It's clearly a common disagreement because Paul refers to earlier events. You're doing it again as though I'm trying to say that. What we said the other day, I'm not trying to get you. A line from George that's often been misheard as, it's funny how I don't even care, follows. It's an overcorrection on the word occurs, because in George's thick Liverpool accent, care is often pronounced cur. What he's actually saying, and the Get Back book transcript confirms this, is it's funny how it only occurs when we, the, um, and then gets cut off by Paul. We can only speculate on what causes the disagreement to occur. Only on Paul's songs? Only on faster songs? But it's irrelevant because Paul rips off the sticking plaster completely when he says, This one is like, should we play guitar all the way through Hey Jude? Well, I don't think we should. George just returns to his earlier point about Paul not letting him play. I don't mind, I'll play what you want me to play, or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play. Now, whatever it is that will please you, I'll do it. This was the payoff in the Let It Be version of the argument. George Harrison, interviewed in an anthology, stated that the motivation for this statement was make up your mind kind of thing. And this is confirmed by George's statement immediately after here. But I don't think you really know what that one is. John offers a solution, giving George the galloping guitar part, but Paul still wants to argue. It's not like that. We've got to do this. We're rehearsing. We've got to get it together for a TV show. And like you said, we've only been through four numbers. So we've probably got to get some system to get through 20. This is something they've never tried before learning a batch of new songs all at once. So it is a challenge that needs project managing. Paul's idea is to build the songs like a sculpture. There's a completely apocryphal quote attributed to Michelangelo about the statue of David. He stated that sculpture was easy. Just chip away the bits that don't look like David. Paul is doing the opposite. He wants a rough shape of all the songs like a lump of clay. And then he wants to embellish them all together add the bits that sound like two of us. I'm not sure this is any more efficient than developing the songs one at a time. In fact, 
the arrangement for Get Back wouldn't sound like it does without all the work put into two of us. Geordie's still insinuating that Paul is stopping him playing. For me, it was a waste of me time, me playing when we started it today. He refers back to earlier rehearsals, stating that after an hour and a half of playing, his parts began to come together. Then we get to the crux of the conflict. Paul states, that way of doing it puts me off the way I'm trying to do it. George then makes the point that I can only do me that one way. Having barely run through two of us, Paul wants to move on, much as John did with Don't Let Me Down. But George this time thinks they should learn it. Though he does offer Maxwell's silver hammer as an alternative. This is perceived as a put down and it may well be. But it also could easily be that George will play bass on that and there won't be the conflict. John agrees to continue with two of us, but Paul still wants to make a point. He bemoans all their time wasting, but he's as guilty as any of them, leading the band into improvised songs earlier today. In fairness though, it's taken them all until late afternoon to rehearse properly. The tape cuts a section out, but the discussion hasn't moved on very much. John is saying to Paul that, for his songs, he should dictate what to play. Paul states he's scared of being the boss, although he has been for a couple of years, but I think he's trying to say this is because no one else will step up. He reiterates that his preferred method would be to do it all like the Red Norvo 5. We'll come to that in a minute or two. So are there any winners or losers in this argument? Well, not really. Nothing is actually resolved. Paul is really just venting his frustration. There are two different working methods of play and they conflict each other. The only real change is that Paul's pleas for support have caused John to be a bit more engaged and serious. George seemingly remains convinced that Paul wants to stop him playing and contributing and Paul feels unsupported by John and uncomfortable with taking the leadership role in what he sees as John's group. Throughout, George has passively been the main antagonist being very passive-aggressive and sticking firmly to his perception of Paul, regardless of Paul's attempts to explain himself. But as with Don't Let Me Down, John's failure to contribute ideas or show leadership causes George and Paul to jockey for position. Paul ultimately being more assertive, but George's passive antagonism causes Paul to become petulant and at times genuinely upset. So yes, it's not the drugs tape, but perhaps it's the suppressed anger of their British upbringing or just the presence of the cameras that prevents this turning into a full-blown row. But that might have cleared the air. We'll let Paul have the final say, however. On one of the sessions, it was around about Maxwell Silverhammer This did used to, I, I'm sure it did piss people off, and much as I tried to not piss people off, obviously if you are... Um, I don't know, driving force, overbearing, whatever you want to call it. If you are on the ball, a perfectionist, whatever, it can annoy some people. Because some people can just say, oh, come on, man, hang out. Come and just have a drink. Go and have a drink. You know, go have a smoke or something. It's just like, which, you know, I did plenty of anyway. I mean, it wasn't as if I was just a relentless crazy. I mean, I did plenty of the other. It just seemed to me when we went, when we had a session booked, it was a cool idea to turn up. You know, but that wasn't always the case. Like Sergeant Pepper, George turned up for his number and, and a couple of other sessions, but not very much else. Because George was supposed to have resented you for always getting on his back. He did resent it. But you see, for instance, 
<clears throat> two examples. One, on, on Abbey Road, I was beginning to get too producery for everyone. George Martin was the actual producer, and I was beginning to sort of be too definite. And George and Ringo turned around and said, oh, look, piss off. We're fed up. Just back off. We're fine. We're grown-ups, and we can do it without you. Fine. So I kind of go, oh, one of those people like me who don't realize when they're being overbearing. It, it can be very... It can become as a great surprise to actually be told you are overbearing, you know. So I completely clammed up and sort of backed off and sort of went, right, okay, I'm burned. Back off. They're right. I'm a turd. Sit here, fine. Okay, guys. So a day or so went by, two days, and the session started to flag a bit. Ringo eventually turned and said, come on, produce. Come on. And so it was like... You couldn't have it both ways, you know. You either had to have me doing what I did, which, let's face it, you know, hadn't done too bad, or I was going to back off and become paranoid myself, which is what happened. As John's guitar drowns out the rest of the conversation, let's continue with the commentary. Paul's reference to the Red Norvo 5, Red Norvo being a jazz vibraphonist, is a strange one, but seems to allude to a jazz group rhythm section staying in the background during solos. Vamping, as John describes it. For the Beatles, vamping simply means strumming the chords in a basic rhythm, not playing anything fancy. This is what John is demonstrating here. Paul favours learning the songs in this basic structure first and then elaborating on it. suggesting George take the chugging rhythm, though George doesn't take up the offer. is the idea that each songwriter should dictate the arrangement to avoid arguments. This would obviously favour him more. George actually agrees, though Paul points out it would mean George having to work out Paul's bass lines. John would rather his bandmates improvise their parts to his songs. Paul gives a knowing laugh. Paul is philosophical here. The problem runs far deeper than just arranging music. 
Their attitude to each other affects their business and personal dealings also. John plays two of us in a different rhythm. I'm not sure that this is a serious suggestion, but it is interesting. This section of audio is used to start the anthology edit of the argument. In a way, it's a more accurate summary of the cause of the disagreement than the Let It Be film. George's idea for a guitar part clashes with what Paul is playing. This is what he meant by too complicated. George explains that in order to understand the change in rhythm, he has divided the lines into bars of 3-4, but rhythmically, this doesn't really fit with what Paul is playing. Kevin offers John a beer, but he'd rather have a tea. George, on the other hand, needs a drink. Okay, let's just play it through anyway. Having said all of that, let's do it as we were doing it, because it was much better. Frustratingly, after all the conflict, Paul wants to go back to how they were playing it before. There's a little quirky expression both Paul and George use. Instead of saying, you know that, i.e. you already understand what I'm saying, Paul says, you know that one. George does something similar earlier when he says to Paul, I don't think you know what that one is. They're not referring to a specific thing here, but it sounds like they are. I'm 
George, in effect here, is continuing his earlier grievance. He understands, but that's why he doesn't want to know anymore. He makes reference to the earlier one, presumably don't let me down, and states that he just wants to assist Paul. Noodling on guitar, George plays a quite nice harmonised Frere Jacques. This evolves into a rendition by George of It Ain't Me Babe by Bob Dylan. This is George's way to procrastinate. John interrupts this, asking what rhythm Paul wants. He likens his chugging rhythm to driving along in a car, which is very apposite. It was turning a heavier. It was going heavier now. Do you want it more country-ish or more... George asks Paul how he wants it. Paul, feeling wounded by the previous conversations, doesn't want to make a decision for fear of treading on people's toes. George suggests a lower paced version, which he demonstrates. Paul cuts him off, counting in another run through. Now John is playing a simpler rhythm vamping as he would put it. This is actually pretty good. George is playing the part as suggested by Paul. Ringo is playing the Be My Baby drums in the middle. Despite what Paul thinks they are listening and supporting him. Maybe 
George still wants to play that 3-4 guitar part. Paul, unusually cooperative, gives it a go, copying him on bass. indicating to George where to sing the high harmony. Ringo has altered the Be My Baby drum idea to something that fits better without prompting from Paul. This rhythmical idea makes an already tricky song harder to follow. No, that's it. There's no solo in it. A, let's use that little end of it as a, like a bit, like a, as a solo bit. Paul counts through the repeats, this time keeping them more regularly spaced. Back home. Just three. Home. This version is better. Despite recent changes. And recent Doddy Buzzardy from Paul on the stress of this afternoon's rehearsals.
Paul wants the chugging intro, but after that, John just strums as before. 93, take one, A camera. George's lead part is beginning to resemble the bass accompaniment he will play on the finished acoustic version. They play the ending without the tricky rhythmic idea. And don't you forget it, brother. suggests a more resolved ending. They then point out what the ending reminds them of. his bandmates and indeed his closest friends and unfortunately us know about an unfortunate personal problem that maybe is affecting his mood George and John have a suggestion for him George definitely changed the subject back to the ending of the song. I'm not sure about the end now. We're doing that repeat bit. Oh, no. suggesting lead part for the ending which he's had in mind since the start tell you what that would be nice with uh, that steel steel on our way 
string open would be alright. You could have those two open. He asks George to play steel, meaning steel guitar or slide guitar. George will of course become a great exponent of this style of playing, but not yet. He complains he'll have to retune his guitar. George is using something as a slide now. I'm not sure what. Maybe a lighter. And so with that, rehearsals for two of us conclude. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. <laughs>